Y'all didn't think I was going to anyway, so I won't worry about it. <laughs> but, uh, I want to read for us tonight verses 1 through 4, just our opening section, so that way I don't have to waste all the time reading the whole thing just to get a few verses in. But let's read verses 1 through 4, and we'll just jump into it. We're going to be picking up in your booklet where it says, Abram's sanctification, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Uh, it says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, which is what it would be called later, uh, and to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now here in chapter 13, we're picking up on a great note. Things are going marvelous now. We're heading back to Bethel. Uh, we're going back to the place where God had blessed. Uh, we're going back to the place where God had given once more the, the, uh, the, his presence and, and this promise uh, of uh, all that he is going to do uh, to Abram and for Abram and through Abram. As well in this, we see Abram's faithfulness, this return back to wanting to meet at the place where he had met with God and to call upon his name. But let's remember back for just a moment, because I know it's been a few weeks. Chapter 12 opens up with God speaking to Abram and the call to him that gives him the promise of land, seed, and blessing. Now, it is not the establishment of the covenant, but it is the promise of the coming covenant, which is going to come in just two more chapters into chapter 15. That's where the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is going to be established. But nevertheless, in this, Abram had departed as the Lord had commanded. Now, chapter 12, verse number 4. And in this, he gets to uh, Canaan land. And Canaan had um, the Canaanites yet still there. And so the land that belonged to God and belonged to Abram was still occupied. And yet that, as we found, is no issue for the Lord. He was going to take care of that. Already had taken care of it, according to his uh, calculations. And it says that the Lord had appeared unto Abram once more, and he promises once more, and Abram built an altar uh, and, uh, where he had appeared unto him. He praises the Lord. He glorifies and, and sits that place apart there at Bethel. But then he goes down into Egypt when a famine comes. Now, as we had seen, during that famine, the first thing that Abram should have done is be still and know that God is God. Trust the Lord's promises that he had just given to him at that place called Bethel, that place where he had met with the Lord and sacrifice there with the Lord. And so we should have trusted in God's provision. Now, we could beat up Abram for that, but you and I often do the same thing, don't we? Uh, when a bill comes, when a problem comes, we go, all right, let's, let's put on our thinking caps. Uh, let's uh, become in Inspector Gadget or, or the Mystery Gang, and let's try to figure this thing out and how we can fix it all. Now, most of the time when we try to go about fixing our problems, we normally make our problems a little bit bigger than what they actually are. And this is what happens to Abram. He goes into Egypt. He makes the problem of a famine a whole lot bigger than what it should have been. He ends up lying to Pharaoh about his relationship with his wife. Says, oh, she's just my sister. Well, he takes Abram's sister in to be his uh, wife. And then what happens is uh, they get plagues upon them. And uh, uh, Pharaoh is used by God to uh, condemn Abram's actions of not only unfaithfulness, but as well now lying. And, but we are reminded that through all of this, even through his sinfulness, God's promises remained true. God's promises remained intact. God's promises were not dependent upon Abram's behavior, but rather Abram enjoying the benefit of God's promises dependent upon Abram's behavior. Notice this. Everything that God has promised to you in Christ Jesus is still promised to you even on your worst day, dear Christian. We've got to remember that. But we must remember that you and I will only enjoy the blessedness and the benefit of being in Christ when we obey Him. And so when you and I go off in, in the Egyptian way or in the way of the world, the flesh, or the devil, 
you and I still have the promises of God that are given us, and they have not changed. They remain the same. The blessing of the union that we have in Christ, all those riches that are in Christ Jesus are still ours, but we won't enjoy them if we're walking our own way, if we're walking our own path, or if we're walking the flesh. But they remain true because God's Word and God's promises to us are not dependent upon us, but our enjoyment of it is dependent upon what we do with those promises. Does that make sense? All right. Um, Now, in chapter 13, as we pick up here, we see Abram's sanctification. Notice this. It it seems as if we had seen what his salvation looked like there that first time he called upon the name of the Lord. But now we get into the sanctification process. As we have said about the life of Abram, or Abraham later on as he's going to be called by God, it is that he pictures the life of the believer, even the life of the Christian. Let's remember this. Over in Romans chapter 1, all the Gentiles are condemned. Chapter 2, the Jewish people are condemned. Chapter 3, in case you were wondering, Jew and Gentile are both condemned. All are guilty before God, right? None are righteous. No, not one. None seek God. They're all uh, uh, full of vain uh, everything, right? They're just uh, uh, wicked, right? But then chapter 3 ends with the beauty of the gospel in the sense that it is Christ alone who has been the propitiation for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God and to make a way when there was no way. But then what is Romans chapter 4? The whole chapter is what? It's preaching the life of Abraham. And it's saying that Abraham was not saved because he was perfect. Abraham was not saved because he was righteous. It was not, he was not saved because he was religious. He was not saved because he did good works. He was not saved because he got baptized or joined Victory Baptist Church. None of those things, believe it or not. It was because he simply trusted God alone. He was saved how you and I see salvation. Salvation has always come. Old and New Testament alike, by grace, and it has been applied by faith. So we must see this need. But then Abram not only pictures what our salvation looks like, Abraham pictures the rest of the Christian life. Now, what is the rest of the Christian life? It is what you and I would call sanctification. It is the continual outworking of our salvation. It is the continual overflow of the riches given the moment of our salvation. It is the... um, It is the uh, pouring out of what we have been given the moment Christ's righteousness was imputed to our account. The moment we were born again, the rest of our life is a sanctifying process of maturing us, growing us, chipping away the world, learning to to, uh, put off the old man and to put on the new and to walk in the newness of life that we have been given, to walk in the union that we now have with Christ, to walk in the communion that we now have with Christ. All of the Christian life is seen... Uh, in what we uh, see as, as abiding in Christ. Now, as Abraham pictures this, we see that God's sanctifying work in lives is not merely keeping us from sin, but delivering us afterwards. There is always a need to be more sanctified by God in this life. There are none of us here who are too sanctified. Right Now, most of us, if we're honest, we are not quite sanctified enough. Uh, We need to return back to a place of a life of holiness. The idea of sanctification, we like to use today in modern terms, we like to use the word sanctification because one, it makes us sound smart. Amen? Right? We like that. We like to sound smart. We like to sound spiritual. We like those two things. Right? If you can sound smart and you can sound spiritual, you can go a long ways in the church world, unfortunately, the way we've designed it. Now, we like to use the word sanctification for those reasons. Now, it's true, it is a sanctification process, the sanctifying of the Christian. That's a biblical term, don't get me wrong. But there is another term that I think that is, as well, a theme that we see Old and New Testament, and I believe it applies all the more, and it is holiness. 
The believer is called and commanded, be holy as I am holy, is what the Lord says over in 1 Peter chapter 1. We see the need to be holy, but how will we ever be holy? How can unholy man be holy? Well, one must be made holy the moment that we trust Christ and are born again. His righteousness applied to our account. Therefore, now in the eyes of God, we are a holy creature, made in newness of life. But then what do we find? It does not take long for us to walk in the flesh or to get mucked up by the world, the flesh of the devil, and what takes place. We get uh, drawn away from our own lusts. And now what is supposed to be holy, set apart from the world and set apart unto God, becomes uh, closer to the world and farther away from God and becomes marred. We get back in the muck and the mire of the world. We get in one ditch or another. And then what has to happen? Much like the prodigal son, we have to come to the place where we come to ourselves. We realize our need to return back to the one who has saved us. And as we come back to him, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we come back to him, what do we find? We find the return and the, the enjoyment of that communal fellowship with our Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is sanctification, but it is the way of holiness. It is the way that God designed the life of the believer. And by the way, we must remember this as well, for Abraham and for us, God gave Abraham everything that Abraham needed to live a godly life. God has given everything that you and I need to be holy. The issue is not if God has provided it or not, the issue is if we will enjoy the blessedness of it and if we will appropriate it or accept it or make it our own, reckon it to be our own by faith, if we will yield to Him or not. So God has given you, Christian, what you need to live the Christian life. Do not think that you have to go search the bookshelves. Do not think you have to go search it at conferences or to try to find some sort of self-help or even to beat yourself into submission because it won't work because most of us are too plain stubborn for that. What we need is not more striving, but as we talked about, more surrendering to the Spirit, to the will of God, to the Word of God. Now, in verse number 1, before I get preaching about other stuff, we'll get into verse number 1. Abram departs here, and we have to see this. I had written this down. I need to do it, because if not, Kimmy will kick my rear, because I, I made her get up and get me... Well, I didn't make her get... That sounds terrible. Let me back up. I asked her politely, and I did. You can ask her to go and get me a hymn book. Uh, I wanted to read for you um, one of my all-time favorite hymns, but I want to read it here in our hymn book. It says, Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Now that's the modern English version, but the original version was as follows. It was not, uh, it was not um, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. It was be of sin the double cure, Save from wrath and its power. So we have to understand this. When we talk about sanctification, the, and that, that was the, uh, the original. Now what we read and what we sing today is, and make me pure, the idea is very close and similar. What is sanctification? Well, it's the purification of the believer. It's to be more pure, to be more holy. But when we understand this as the author had originally written it, the double cure, well, what's the double cure of salvation? of Christ's blood. The double cure is this. One, he says, save from wrath. Well, that's our salvation. Save from its power. It, what is that? That's our sanctification from the power of sin. So the moment you got saved, we call that in the Bible world. And according to Romans and throughout the scripture, we call it. And even what Abram had dealt with as well, according to Romans chapter four and throughout his life here, justification. 
Now, it is not just as if I had never sinned. It is as if just as if I had kept the law perfectly in the eyes of God. It is the idea of the imputed righteousness, stamp of approval of God, the uh, beautiful and wonderful and infinite transaction where Christ receives all of our unholiness, all of our unrighteousness, all of our unworthiness, and re- we receive His righteousness applied to our account. Now, what takes place the moment that you are saved? That's what salvation is. You say, well, we call it salvation, being born again, being justified freely by the grace and mercy of God. What we would see is that it saves us from sin's penalty, right? That's the wrath. Now, what is sanctification? This is being saved from sin's power. This is the moment-by-moment surrendering of our spirit to the Spirit of God according to the Word of God as we study the Word, as we hear the Word, as we sing the Word, as we fellowship around the Word, we see our great need to be holy and to be set apart, sanctified, and we find that we need to be delivered from the power of sin. Now, ultimately, what do we know? We know this, the moment you got saved, you were delivered from it, and you were given what is needed so that, according to Romans chapter 6, you no longer have to be sin's servant or slave, but rather, you may now freely serve Christ because you are in Christ. You have been bought with a price. And so because now you belong to Him, because you've been justified, therefore, God will continue to do a work in you. He who began a good work shall complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. So what is that work that He will complete? That sanctification process. And one day it will come to a completion when we get to our glorification. That is the threefold work of God's salvation for man. Justification, saved from sin's penalty. Sanctification, saved from sin's power. And that is a lifelong process and then one day, glorification, it is to be delivered from sin's presence. And ultimately, it will no longer have any power because it won't be present in our lives anymore. It won't even be allowed there. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter number 22 that the curse will be removed. There will be no more curse. So, as we just sang this past Sunday with joy to the world, right? Uh, he's come to make his blessings known for as the curse is found. Well, where is the curse found? everywhere. That's right. And so we find that in Christ, what is He doing? Slowly but surely, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through the Word of God, as we yield to Him, we see that one day we will experience the blessedness of being without a curse forevermore. Now, Abraham, uh, he is certainly getting to enjoy the presence of Almighty God right now, but here at this point, we need to see his sanctification process. It goes a lot like yours and mine, and it begins the same way. Abram went up out of Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. Abram had to begin his journey back to the beginning and back to the place of God's blessing. Notice this. Egypt was a wicked and a pagan place, and yet God used it. You say, well, how did God use it? Well, He used it here to correct Abraham. Later on, at the end of Genesis, is going to be another famine, and He's going to use it to preserve Abraham's seed. Why? Messiah's got to come through that seed, so He's going to protect it. And then what does he use Egypt for? To bless that seed. To bless Jacob and his sons as they live there. But then what happens? He uses it to see that his seed would increase in number. They would then become slaves and they would be abused. But he then uses Egypt to show forth his might as he crushes them and mocks every one of their gods in the Ten Commandments to deliver his people, which, by the way, he promises all that in just two more chapters, hundreds of years before it ever happens. So, what we find is that God is at work and God still is able to use a pagan place. But notice this, God does not desire for us to abide in such a place. God may use it for a season, either to prune us, 
to convict us, or perhaps even to provide for us, much like he had to do with Elijah with a dirty old raven delivered him food by the brook Cherith. He will use what he must use, and he will always do it for our good, for his glory. And what we find is that God's will for our life is not for us to abide in Egypt. Why? Because God had given him a land that was far greater than Egypt ever could be. Egypt had everything, right? It was, uh, it was full of, of vegetation, full of life, full of commerce. But later on, what do we find? Egypt is destroyed. Egypt is worthless and seen as nothing. And what does God call the Canaan land as he brings them out of Egypt? He says, I'm going to take you into a land that is flowing with what? Milk and honey. Now, what's the idea of milk and honey? Does that mean you walk over to a tree, you knock on it three times, and milk shoots out 2%, right? No, that's not quite the case here. The idea is a place of abundance and blessing. But notice this. In those days, milk and honey were precious commodities. Why? You know what you can make with milk? Cheese? Bread, bread, butter? Right, all kinds of stuff, right? Now, then what can you make with honey? Well, you can take the honey with the milk product, and you can make honey butter, right? That's good. Now, I think about this. Miss Cammie, she's been getting into uh, making a fresh sourdough, all right? Um, and, and I love it. It's been breakfast, so in the morning, I take my two slices, stick it in the toaster, right? It goes. You can hear it. And then I pop it out, and then guess what happens? First thing that's going on there, butter. That's right. You guys got it. All right. Way to go. You guys are sanctified, those that said butter. Then you know what goes on it next? Honey, that's right. Way to go. Doug's sanctified too. Now, he's double sanctified, all right? <laughs> We're going to catch up to him one day, though. Now, you put butter and honey on it. Why? Because I can't think myself of anything that tastes better than it. You might be able to, but I just can't. I've tried. And, and I've tried it a whole different ways, but butter and honey together on that, on that fresh toast is incredible. And you say, why do I say all that? Because what God is doing is he's showing that I'm going to bring you out of Egypt because I've got a much better place for you. But notice this, even Canaan land that is flowing with milk and honey is not even close to a new city of a new Jerusalem and a new heavens and a new earth with streets made of gold, walls made of jasper, and gates made of pearl. A single pearl, if that, right? And so we find that God is always bringing his people to a far better place and ultimately the place that he's bringing them to is his presence. You and I can shorten our journey if we would walk in His presence along the way. If we walk and abide in the presence of Almighty God, it's going to mean that we're going to skirt Egypt a whole lot more in our life. And it means that we're going to not want to stay in Egypt if we're there because we're not going to be comfortable there because God's presence is not abiding and His blessing is not there. We're going to want to get to where His presence is. And this is what takes place for Abram. So this picture of the life of faith shows that our sanctification is not a one-time dealing, but a lifetime of being worked out by grace through faith. Notice, God was gracious to Abram. Here in that moment in Egypt, the moment he lied, you know what God could have done and been just in doing so? He could have opened up the heavens, looked down and said, Pharaoh, you're a wicked man and I'm going I'm to take care of you. Don't worry. But Abram, I promised you all these things. You have now lied. You are a sinner and I'm taking those promises away and I'll give them to somebody better who, can I, can, who I can trust. But he didn't. God's grace revealed his attributes and his actions that he wanted to give and show and reveal to Abraham. And Abram now sees once more by faith who God is. He gets up and out of Egypt and he starts heading back to the place where he had met with God and where God had met with him. Now it takes a lifetime to rid the believer of the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it will take a lifetime. So do not lose heart. You might be struggling with sin today. Well, I can rest assured you're going to struggle with it tomorrow. 
and the next day, and the next day, until death do you part. But we have been given all that is needed in Christ Jesus to conquer sin's power over our life and to see that one day it will be read once and for all and that we no longer have to serve sin. I want to tell you all this, and you might think it's gross, but you all know this, that dogs eat poop. Okay, it's my dog even too does it. Now, I tell my dog every time he does it, I go, buddy, you don't have to do that anymore. Jesus died for us, so we don't have to eat that no more. Now, I tell him that because the Lord has used my dog doing such a disgusting and a vile thing to remind me that it does not take me too long to get in my flesh and do what my fleshly nature wants to do. What does my fleshly nature want to do? Gets in the muck. My fleshly nature wants what is not good for me. My fleshly nature wants that which stinks in the sight and the nostrils of God. But what does the Spirit do? What does the new nature want to do? The new nature wants to please the Lord. And so because Christ has done this for me, I no longer have to do those things. So if you feel that you are trapped by sin, I want you to know, if you are in Christ, you do not have to be trapped. The, 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 the chains are gone. You've been set free. You have Christ. You have His Word. You have His Holy Spirit and His very promise that He will complete a good work in you. Now, as we move forward in this, we see that the believer's sanctification begins with getting away from the world and one's own sinfulness. We are to fight and to flee from sin. We find that ultimately this is repentance. Repentance uh, returns by faith to the place of God's presence and provision. We find that ultimately repentance is always a getting up out of Egypt. That is the first part of repentance. But repentance is never just getting out of Egypt. It's then getting Egypt out of us as we return to the presence of God. We must understand this, that the Christian life is not merely about avoidance. We think that we become more holy by avoiding sin. Well, you can avoid a whole bunch of big old sins and worldly sins that you would consider, oh, whew, good, I'm avoiding drugs, alcohol, pornography, I'm avoiding lying, cheating, stealing, right, and all that stuff. But somehow I found myself to where now I'm dealing with pride, covetousness, anxiousness, jealousy, deceit, right? We find all sorts of things. We will find sin and sin will find us. And so we must understand that it is not merely a life of avoiding sin, but rather it is one of seeing that sin has been conquered by the blood of Christ. And we now come to him by faith, moment by moment and day by day for renewal, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Now, and by the way, at the end of that verse, we say, which is our reasonable service that's what our life now is to be to be given holy to our holy god phillips writes true biblical separation is not isolation but insulation it is living in the world as a believer without being of the world let me ask you this y'all ever been up to lancaster or somewhere you can have a go out go out in mezzadan now and you can see some you ever seen amish folks right now those amish folks they isolate let me ask you, in their isolation, are they without sin? No. Matter of fact, many of them even have what's called rumspringa, where they uh, have their young folks and they can go out into the world for a while and live it up, do whatever they want to do, and then they can either decide to come back to the Amish world or go out into the world. That's not healthy, right? How about this? You take an old monk, an old friar, you stick him in a monastery with a bunch of other monks, they walk around on their knees, they mop, they do dishes, they beat themselves to submission, and they sit in dark rooms and they pray for 10 hours a day. Do you think that they're without sin? No. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther even talked about this. He had spent his life like that. 
He had even gone to Rome on a pilgrimage and went up these flight of stairs on his knees and back down, which was supposed to be for the most holy of people. And when he got up, he said, is that all? What was that supposed to have done for me? He still was petrified of a God that he thought he knew. And then one day he did come to know him. The Lord met him. The Lord saved him. Praise God and and delivered him from that. Now that does not mean he lived a perfect life after that because what we find is that none of us will live a perfect life after that, but we have a perfect Savior and a perfect blood and a perfect book and a perfect Holy Spirit that has been given to us to live this sanctified, set-apart life. Now the easiest thing that we can do is that you and I often think of this is one, sin makes us want to isolate. It makes us want to get away from God because it has taken us away from God. And then two, it wants to keep us away from God because we think now we're not worthy to get back to God. But what we are told is that instead of doing like Adam and Eve and running and hiding behind a tree from God, we need to run to God. Go, confess your sin. And we must remember what then Romans 8 then tells us. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. And then later on in the same chapter that there is nothing, no one, high, low, visible, or invisible, or anything else in between that you can even possibly think of, imagine, or name that could separate us from the love of God. So because of that, do not isolate yourself when you sin. Rather, uh, involve yourself with God because He wants to involve Himself with you. And then we must see that while sin wants to isolate us, it is never the answer uh, for sin for us to isolate, but rather... What we find is that biblical separation, it is insulation. What does insulation do? A good insulated home, what does it do? It keeps heat in, don't it? Now, what are we called? We're called the light of the world, aren't we? Right? That's what Jesus said. You're to be a light of the world, salt of the earth. And so, uh, what do we think? When he talks about a candle that is set in a window is the idea. And at the time, and you can even still see it today if you make that, uh, that trip, there's a whole, uh, whole town that's on this uh, seaside. And, and when they all light up their candles, the whole thing is just poof. The whole idea is that we would be insulated. Insulated by what? Insulated so that the light of the world, that the light of the truth of the gospel, that the warmth of the gospel, the warmth of the Holy Spirit of God that now abides in us would remain. That we would enjoy the warm fellowship of our Savior as we were designed to do so. Now, as we get into verse 2 through 4, and I've got to hurry because I didn't preach about two messages on verse 1 already. We need to get into verse 2 and 4. We need to see Abram's destination here. This is going to help us out here with verse number one. Verse number one would be enough for the average Christian that would say, well, we just need to avoid sin. Well, that's, number, that's verse number one, okay? Avoid sin, get out of Egypt. Well, that's part one. But repentance is a departure from one place, and it is a return to the place where we meet with God. So, real repentance is never just avoidance of sin. Real repentance is never even just being sorry for sin. Real repentance is not merely being sorry and mourning your sin, because here's what happens. We can be sorry for our sin, and I believe it's a good thing. I believe it's a biblical thing. We ought to mourn our sin. But once you get to that mourning of your sin, the road forks. The road forks, and you will either do one thing, you will either wallow in the sin, or you will mortify the sin. What do we need to do? Wallow in it? No. You ever wallowed in any in self-pity? Does it ever do you any good? No, right? You ever wallow in anything? It don't do no good, right? Wallowing never does any good. Right? You can mark that down. But we are told in Colossians chapter 3 to mortify 
We're told in Romans chapter 6 to mortify. What does it mean to mortify? Put it to death. The idea is not even stomping it to death. It is that of a slaughter with a knife. It's to make it bleed out. Right? It is to put it to death. So, be sorry for your sin. Mourn your sin. Don't wallow in it. No, mortify it. And then what, what's the second part of repentance that makes it complete? It is a turning my eyes away from my sin. Because if I don't, then I'm going to waller in it. But when I turn my eyes away from it, I, I'm sorry. I'm mournful. It gets mortified, put to death. And then what? I see Christ. Now, here's the easiest way to go ahead and feel sorry for your sin. Mourn it and mortify it. Look to Christ. Here's the easiest way to live the Christian life. Look to Christ. Here's the only way to be saved. Look to Christ. Here's the only way to be sanctified. Look to Christ. Here's the moment of your glorification. You want to know when you're going to be glorified? When you not only look to Christ, but you see Him. Face to face. Not with eyes of faith, because you won't need those anymore. But with those eyeballs you got. Not the ones with glasses, not the ones with contacts, not the one that goes this way or that way, but the ones that can look straight ahead glorified by God Almighty and can see Him face to face. Now, As we move forward in this, we see Abram's destination picks up and he says, describes this, notice this, Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold. Now, some of this had come from even in his time in Egypt. You say, well, didn't he sin in Egypt? Yep, like I said earlier, God still yet blessed Abram. Not because of Abram's goodness, but because of God's goodness. Do you want to know why God blesses you? Not because you're good. (laughs) If God only blessed me when I was good, I wouldn't be blessed. (laughs) The reason why we're blessed tonight is not our goodness or faithfulness. It is God's goodness and God's faithfulness. The reason why we're saved, sanctified, one day we'll be glorified. The reason why we're blessed, the reason why we're alive, God's goodness, God's faithfulness, not of ours, right? Uh, not, of, not of my works, all of Him. Now, as we look here, McDonald writes, underlying Abram's return to Bethel from Egypt was a return to fellowship with God. Back to Bethel is the rallying cry for all who have wandered from the Lord. This must be our cry. Uh, back to Bethel. It must be the cry of the believer that whether is in sin or is battling sin or struggling with sin or, or even just sees their need of Christ moment by moment and day by day. This must be the cry of revival because this is the cry of revival. It is the cry of repentance. What is revival, if anything, more than just the outworking of what repentance really should look like? If there's real repentance, there'll be real reviving. Life will come once more if there's repentance. Genuine repentance. Biblical repentance. Faithful repentance. And when we see that, what do we find? We see this looking to Christ and we find a return to the presence of God. Not in some sort of mystical way where we go, ooh, I got the tinglys, or ooh, I, I, I feel something. No, no, the idea is that we get to the place where we are communing with the one that we are united to. That is the goal of the Christian life. That should be our desire. It is the heart's desire of the believer. It is the heart's desire of the new nature within the believer. And furthermore, it is the promise of where we are going one day. That is the future home of where every believer will be. Back to Bethel, the house of God, the place where God dwells. Now remember that Abram had already set up his altar as a place of reverence and remembrance in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. Look with me there, Genesis 12, 8. He removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel in the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now just before, in chapter 7 as well, he had built an altar unto the Lord. Now what happens at that altar? 
Well, you say, well, Abram's altered. Well, why was he altered? Well, because there, by grace, through faith, he made sacrifice unto God. He believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. We find that by faith, Abram called upon the Lord. By faith, he enjoyed the communion and fellowship and the blessing of God's promises and the very blessing of knowing God's presence. Now, as we see here, Abram remembers the responsibility to revere God and respond to His grace by faith. And this is why he's making his journey. I believe here, Abram's got days, if not more than likely weeks, perhaps even months, of a journey ahead of him leaving Egypt and heading back to the place of Bethel. He's got a long time to think about it, don't he? I believe this. On that journey, Abram is not thinking about what he was missing in Egypt. There was comforts there. He could have had a good life there. He could have been a wealthy businessman there. I mean, you think of all that Abram had, he could have been very well off if he had stayed in Egypt. But he's going back to a place in the outskirts of the middle of nowhere, there at Bethel, and there he's going to meet with God. What we see is as he moves forward, we don't find him looking back and going, man, I wish I would have stayed in Egypt. No, I believe if anything, he's going, man, I wish I would have stayed in Bethel. I wish I would have stayed where God had met with me and I had met with God and I had met with Him in this place and I would have abided in His presence. But nevertheless, he knows his great need to return back to the house of God. Remember that Bethel means house of God. This should be the cry of all of us. It should be a desire of our hearts to return to the house of God. It was, as the psalmist puts it, that we were glad. I was glad when it said went up to the house of God, when I entered into the presence of God, when I went amongst His people, it should be our desire. It should be the, the focal point of our week. This is why the Sunday uh, a day of rest for us as we come together and worship the Lord's day together, it should be the highlight of our week. It should not merely be something else that's on our to-do list. It should not be something else that is a part of our life or one other thing to check off, or like a ball practice or a job that we clock in and we clock out. It should be the highlight of our week because we are gathering around to feast upon the Word of God to give Him glory and honor and to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. And there is truly nothing more beautiful or wonderful or more blessed than that. Now as Abram journeys back to Bethel with his riches as he makes the altar the destination of his heart. No longer was the destination comfort. That was no longer, that was no longer what Abram is seeking. Abram is not seeking any longer just to avoid a famine or avoid hard times or to be able to keep his job or livelihood. Now he is seeking the only thing that matters, and that is the presence of God. The average Christian today is far too attached to the things of the world, and we seek comfort more than Christ. We seek, uh, we seek peace everywhere except with the Prince of Peace. We seek uh, all of these things. We seek stability in an unstable world. And we often realize that we will never have stability without understanding that Christ alone is sufficient and He is the only one that is stable. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Phillips writes, Abram had skirted the world once. Now he put distance between himself and Egypt by getting back to Bethel, the house of God, and reestablishing his pilgrim character. He pitched his tent at Bethel and restored fellowship with God. Notice this. In verse number 3, went on his journeys from the south even unto Bethel and the place where his tent had been at the beginning. You ought to underline that if you, if you underline anything in your Bible. That he returns back to the very beginning. I believe that this is needed in every Christian's life. I, I believe that here's what happens. Sadly, I've seen folks here in the past couple years that we've been here, someone gets saved, and the first thing that somebody's been saved more than a few decades, 
Well, enjoy it right now because you're on a high. You won't feel this way forever. What an encouraging thing to say to a new believer. I can't think of anything more encouraging than telling them, well, I hope you like the way you feel now because you won't feel this way in 30 years, bucko. Right? How sad this is. Now you say, well, preacher, isn't it true? Well, sure. Let's think of it this way. You think about the day that you got, you got married. Right? Walking, watching your bride come down the aisle. I mean, you've never had so many butterflies. You've never sweated so much in all your life. You're excited, right? Now you've been married. And the, what do they say? Oh, well, you're still in the honeymoon stage, right? They say that the first couple years or so. And, and then after that, they start going, well, you know. Now the old ball and chain. They start saying things like this, right? You all laugh because y'all have all said those things, right? You've all felt those things. You felt the butterfly standing there waiting. You're dressed all nice, right? You're trying not to lock your knees. And then now you're just trying to avoid eye contact in the hallway on the way to breakfast in the mornings, right? You're, 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 all these things, right? We've, everyone has been there. But let me ask you, should a love for Christ get to the place where we get to the place where it just, well... The feelings aren't the same. Let me ask you even this. Should a marriage be at the place where, well, we're together, we love each other, we ain't going nowhere, but it ain't like it was. I hope it's not like it was. Because it shouldn't be. It should be better. That's right, it should be more mature. The love, it changes because there you still got a young, lustful love. You're still young and excited about all sorts of future. Now you've You've been through everything at this point together, ups and downs of life, and you're still together. And now what do you realize? I've got to have loved you more now than I did then because look at what we've gone through together. And you're bound to love me more than what you did then because look at what I've put you through through these years, right? And when we think about this, do you remember what Jesus says to the first church He writes to in Revelation? Writes to Ephesus. He says, you guys solid as a rock doctrinally. You, you can't stand the, the, all, all these false teachers like I can't stand. You are on the money. You're doing good works. You got ministry. You got church down to a science. He says, but I got something against you. You remember what he says to him? You've lost your first love. That's it. You can have the right doctrine. You can know that Bethel is called the house of God. You can know what an altar is for. You can know how to make sacrifice. But if you've lost your first love, what do you have to do? Return. The love is still there, but it needs to be rekindled, doesn't it? This is why many marriages who are struggling, they'll go to a conference or they'll go to therapy or rehab or something to figure this out. And I highly recommend you ought to do everything in your power to make it work. But here's what we find. When the Christian life, the only thing that ever works is getting back to the beginning. All that is found right here. He goes back to the beginning of it all. Why? Because that's where the first love was found. Between Bethel and Hai. Back in chapter 12, verse 7 and 8. And he says, Unto the place of the altar, which he had made it there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. I believe that every Christian probably has and ought to have those places in their Christian life where God met with them in a mighty way. It could be an altar in a church. It could be a church pew. It might be your car. It might be 
uh, it might be a barn, it might be a stump on your property, it might be your garden, but you ought to have that place where you remember, God dealt with me there, either for my salvation, or maybe He got something right in my life there, God answered prayer there, uh, I poured out my heart to God there. We ought to have those places, why? Because they remind us of who God is and what He's done, and they bring us back to the simplest act of worship that there is, and it's a place of reverence. We should feel that way every time we walk in this sanctuary. Because this sanctuary ought to be a place where we remember God dealt with me there. God answered prayer there. I, I, I got to be used of God there. The Lord showed up here. right? It ought to be that for us. right? As we go forward, we see that this is the place where He calls once more upon the name of the Lord. This is repentance. This is revival. This is sanctification. This is the Christian life. Scroggy writes, Abram went back to the beginning. Spiritual progress had been at a standstill while he was in Egypt. There was no uh, he there he built no altar, nor called on the name of the Lord. But now he returns to the place of blessing. Famine had damaged his fidelity and his faith, but at Bethel, the house of God, he recovered both. Repentance is the key to spiritual recovery. Nothing more, nothing less. You say, spiritually, I'm struggling. Have you tried repenting? You say, well, I, well, I, I don't think i got anything to repent of. Well, go ahead and repent of that too, and you'll start getting things right just fine, right? Uh, there was a false teacher who's out there. Uh, his name is Todd White. Just the other day, <laughs> he goes, I have not told a lie in 18 years. I thought, well, he might have done good for 18 years, but he just flubbed it up right there. Right? And here's what we find. None of us are at a place where we think we are. None of us are at the place where we ought to probably be. What we find is that real spiritual recovery, real spiritual progress will never happen outside of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith go hand in hand because you won't find real faith without repentance and you won't find real repentance without faith. So we find that both are necessary and the two go hand in hand to make the the one and the other and they make up the whole life of being a Christian. There's never a day that you don't need faith. Wouldn't you agree? There's never a day that you don't need repentance. Wouldn't you also agree? Of course. And so we find that as we learn to abide in the house of God, abide at the altar, abide in His presence, we quickly learn to repent. We quickly learn to remember who He is. We quickly learn what faith looks like and we trust Him and we turn our eyes away from our own sinfulness and even where we were in Egypt and now we look to Christ by faith and we have restoration, we have peace, we have revival, we have spiritual recovery and progress. Now, Abram's sanctification is not complete simply because he leaves Egypt. That's part one. The real sanctification begins when he gets back to the beginning. Same for you and I. Remember, sanctification in the Christian life is not merely about avoidance. It is about an appropriation of faith of who Christ is and what He has given us, the many riches of His grace. Now, His sanctification is seen all the more in that He goes back to the place of worship and by faith calls upon the Lord in a sacrifice of repentance and faith. True sanctification in the life of the believer is what it means to live by faith. Faith always sets itself apart from the world, the flesh, and the devil and sets itself unto God for His good pleasure and glory. So, when will we be done with this? 
When will Abram come to a place of complete sanctification? I can tell you when. The moment he leaves this world behind. The same that we must understand as Hebrews tells us about life of Abraham, that he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. So you want to know when your sanctification process is over? You want to know when your war with sin and its power over your flesh is over? The moment you see that city. The moment you see that day come where we see our Savior face to face. We ought to long and look forward to that day, but until that day, we need to simply do as Abram did at this point. We need to learn what sanctification is. We need to learn that it is the Christian life. It is Christian living. It is holiness. And how do we see that? First, we understand this. It is not something that we can attain, but it is something that we may obtain. To attain something means I go and I take it. I can go, I can work it, I can buy it, I can earn it. Well, I can't do that, can I? What does it mean to obtain? It needs to be given. The same God that gave you your salvation, the same God that promises sanctification and glorification. So therefore, you and I must not seek to try to attain the Christian life because that's what we do in our flesh. Our flesh wants to attain. Why? Because our flesh wants to say, look what I did. Look at me. Look how spiritual I am. Look how much I've progressed. Look how faithful I am. But the new man, the Spirit, your Spirit, my Spirit, yielded to the Holy Spirit, has already obtained sanctification, glorification, seated in heavenly places right now in Christ Jesus. So our life is not found in our avoidance of Egypt, or our constant beating our bodies or minds into submission, our life is where? Hid in Christ with God. That is our life. Christ, who is our life, one day shall be revealed, because He will reveal Himself fully, and we shall be called unto Him, and so shall we ever be. Then we will see the fullness of, of what we have already obtained in Christ the moment He saved us by His grace and His mercy. There's a lot more to that. i got three, four more hours, but let's just pray and uh, we'll go. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. We're grateful for Your Word. God, there's a great deal of things in this tonight for each one of us, myself included, Lord, to get back to the simple things of, of honoring You, of holiness of holy living. And Lord, holy living is nothing that my flesh can do. It's something that only can be accomplished with Christ in me. And Lord, we do pray that we would be yielded to You, to Your Word. God, that we would seek Bethel. That we would seek Your house. We would seek Your presence. We would seek you know, to, to place ourselves even upon the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto You, which is our reasonable service. We pray, Lord, that You would help us as we go from this place to meditate upon Your Word. Lord, to hide Your Word in our heart that we might not sin against You. And God, that we would be pleasing unto You and that we would uh, call others to faith and repentance where they would believe the gospel, that we would see uh, that souls would come to know you and that they would have the same assurance and the same be benefits and blessings that you have given to us in Christ, Lord. We love you. We thank you for this time. Watch over us now in Jesus' name. Amen.